Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Each week we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into this sermon or were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. I'm Emily and with me is Pastor Zach. This week, Pastor Tim started our church Advent series on hope. Why did the Son of God have to take on human flesh? Well, as we read through the scriptures, we see the developing saga of humankind's rebellion against God and all of the effects that are passed from Adam to all of his descendants who not only inherit Adam's sin nature, but then through each of our own rebellion against God's law and God's holiness, we ourselves are worthy of death and of God's judgment. And so the means of rectifying this condition into which humankind made in the image of God have cast themselves into is through the means of a kinsman redeemer. And so we see this principle demonstrated in the book of Ruth, for example, where Boaz uh, takes Ruth, the Moabitess, who was married originally to someone from his family, and he takes her, he covers her with the wings of his garment, marries her, and then um, effectively he provides for her as someone from the household of her near relative or of, of her former husband as his near relative as a means of redeeming the family. That concept foreshadows for us the need that we have for a kinsman redeemer, that for you and I, for humankind to be redeemed from the fallenness of our of our flesh, the condition to which we are in as, as sinners, we need someone who is also Uh, connected with us as humankind, who has taken on our very nature. And so the incarnation of God the Son, the coming of of Jesus Christ, is the realization of that kinsman redeemer, someone who took on flesh in order to ransom us. And so that's the need that we have for someone to, in the flesh, in our nature, redeem our fallen nature. What is the significance of Mary's virgin birth? Yeah, so when we look at the virgin birth in the New Testament, it's this miraculous event that accomplishes a couple of things. Number one, it testifies to the fact that this is a unique child, unlike any other child in human history. This is a miraculous birth that speaks to the fact that this is a very, very unique, special child. And it's a among a, a biblical lineup of heroes and messiahs and saviors, smaller case for all of those, that this is the messiah. This is the savior to come. And so uh, that uniqueness is marked out by the virgin birth. But more importantly, theologically, we find that from Adam, each one of his descendants inherit uh, his fallen nature. And so they have a sin nature. They are born corrupted, and therefore they are born with a nature that condemns them to death. That nature is passed on from father to child, father to child, father to child, down the generations of human history. That lineage of sinfulness needs to be broken in order for Christ to be perfect and therefore for him to live the perfect sinless life that you and I could not live and to offer himself as a substitute to atone for the wrath of God. So for Christ to have that sinless nature, he needs to be disconnected from the sin nature being passed down from Adam through every father to their children. And so the virgin birth is necessary to preserve the sinless, perfect nature of Jesus Christ. Did Christ have to give up his divine power by becoming a man? So in Philippians chapter 2, we read that God the Son took on human form uh, and became like a servant 
and that he did not count his equality with God something to be grasped or something, in other words, to be exploited, that he emptied himself. And this has caused all kinds of theological discussion down through the ages of the church. What does it mean that Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and, and taking on human form and, and the nature of humankind? And the answer to that question is, of course, very complicated. We don't fully, and our minds aren't able to fully wrap our, our thinking around this glorious idea that God the Son became a man. And so we're never going to fully understand that truth. But while we don't fully understand it, we can endeavor, as, uh, as some have remarked, to understand it truly. And so as we think about that, by Christ emptying himself, it is not to say that he gave up his divine nature. Rather, he added to his divine nature a human nature, so that in the person of Christ are two natures united, divinity and humanity. And in his humanity, he uh, does not exercise the divine prerogatives that belong to his divine nature. And so in the incarnation, God the Son set aside in his human nature, the exercise of those divine rights that belong to him for the sake of accomplishing our redemption, so that as a man he could live, that as a man he could be tempted, and as a man he could suffer and die for us and accomplish what we could not in our flesh through his flesh and therefore restore us to God. So it is not as though God, uh, that Jesus Christ gave up his divinity, but in adding to himself his humanity, he set aside the, the use of his divine prerogatives. When exactly was Jesus born? The gospel accounts seem to contradict each other. It's hard to nail down exactly the date of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Certainly somewhere um, either just before or just after the conversion between the B.C. and A.D. eras. Uh, So we're not exactly sure if it's year zero or not. But more importantly to the question, there is some criticism that's levied against the gospel accounts, particularly Luke's gospel account, um, of those who suggest that Luke has got his dates confused, uh, particularly right around the time of the birth of Christ. So in Luke chapter 2, we read that there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his town. And Joseph also went to Galilee from the town of Nazareth, Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered uh, with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. As we go down in this narrative, we also find out that this is the time in which Herod is reigning there in Judea. So we've got these various dates and individuals. We've got Caesar Augustus, who's the, the emperor of Rome. We've got Quirinius, who's the governor of Syria. And then we've got the rule of Herod. The issue that many historians and critics of the Bible point out is that these dates seem to be out of alignment, that Quirinius... Uh, is before Herod. There should be a gap between them. Moreover, we've got a fair idea of when the first registration of Quirinius happened, and it should have happened a little bit later than what we see here. So how do we reconcile the complexity of these dates? And I think that there are a number of different ways that these are fairly easily resolved in the text. I don't necessarily have a preference between any of them, but it's possible here uh, that the Quirinius that's being mentioned is not the one in the account that Josephus, the Jewish historian, provides for us, where we see these dates being conflicted. It's possible also that Josephus is the one who has his dates uh, misconstrued, and therefore um, the dates in Luke's account 
would be accurate. It's also possible that when it says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor, that word there first in the Greek uh, could also be understood. This was the the uh, census before, or this was the first before the registration that Quirinius uh, gave. So this might not actually be the census that Quirinius levied uh, against the area. This might be one that preceded that one, which also resolves the issues with the dates. So there's a number of ways you can look at it. I think what we need to do is say this. Number one, we need to affirm the accuracy, the inerrancy of the biblical account, that what we have here is not an error historically, uh, but that whichever way this issue is resolved, that there are numerous very plausible ways for resolving this issue, and that the Bible is our sole source of ultimate authority. Second, we know that Luke is, among particularly the gospel authors, uh, he is particularly concerned with the details of his account. He is writing this to a man, Theophilus, uh, a Gentile, And he is writing an account that he means to present a true history of the things seen and heard in other places about the life and times of this person, Jesus Christ. And with the doctor's level of care and concern over details, which Luke is a doctor, he accounts for us a a gospel narrative that is unique in its real insistence on a level of detail and accuracy. And so when it comes to the dates here, I think we need to affirm clearly, um, however we understand those things shifting out, Luke is providing a historical account and is not providing one where he is lax or unconcerned with the details. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.